Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green, and I'm your host of the Sunday edition today, August the 15th, 2021. Thanks for being along with me today. It's been a, a good week. Um, we, we were able to get out. Will and I traveled a little bit. We went over to Tennessee for a little bit to see some family and do some things. Ended up having a really good week. We're connecting with, uh, with, with a group of people that, that have some interesting thoughts on, on how to do fitness sort of related things. And so trying to work that some of their ideas more into his recovery and training as we move forward is, you know, right now it's just a matter of putting the head down, plowing forward and figuring out what needs to be done. So thank you for your continued prayers for him. That means more to us than you can ever begin to imagine. Um, we've, we've had a, a good week and I'm, I'm excited about the future and I'm excited about where all this is going. And I'm excited about the restoration God's done in our family. And it's been uh, a beautiful thing and a work of God's that, that that has occurred. So I'm excited about that, excited about some opportunities for the future and, and looking ahead and looking forward to to making some changes, doing uh, adding some things, really, because I'll continue to do the podcast. But we're also going to start doing a video version of the podcast, uh, hopefully here in the next couple of months. I can get that started, and, and so I'm excited to, to begin to do that. Um, we've, we've, you know— been kind of treading water on on some things for a while just because of Will's injury and trying to figure out all right how do how do we move forward I had some plans that I had uh, prior to the injury and, and those have been kind of shelved for the time being but but I'm anxious to get that moving again and start moving forward with that so keep me in your prayers for that keep also this this country and the world in your prayers as this COVID thing just seems to continue on and on and and divides the world um, and. and and for the for the politicians on both sides who are continuing to divide this country over these issues, and and, and they're using so many wedges now, um, and, and it's just it's not good. It's not good. I'm afraid for this country, and I'm afraid that if we, the church, aren't clear about these things, and we don't we aren't clear about what we believe, and and our faith and our strength and all that kind of stuff, and, and that that if we're not clear about who we are then I think this, this is going to get out of control. And I think the church has an important role to play in education, and I think we have an important role to play in, in bringing about unity in the country in a lot of ways if we've not gone, frankly, too far for that to happen. And, and so I'm, I'm deeply concerned about that. So we want to ask you to pray for, for that and then also pray for what's going on in Afghanistan. Pray that, that our people can get out of there safely and that, um, that God will just do something there in that place and, and protect the, the innocent people who are, who are likely to suffer greatly um, from our misadventure, as it were, there in, in nation building and, the, and then pulling them out and leaving it to their own devices, much like we did in Saigon uh, back in the 1970s. And so I, I've got a lot of concern, let's say, about what's going on there. Um, I don't think that we have been particularly wise in many things that that we have done and are doing, and I, and I think that's the th the theme for today. Really, is the last verse of Psalm 111 is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever, and so I believe that that's absolutely true, and I believe that's one of the biggest problems that we have. We could we could do with a whole lot more prayer in our decision making rather than than look into worldly wisdom. And, and as the nation moves swiftly into a post-Christian society, I'm afraid that we're losing touch with the source of wisdom and the fount of wisdom. And, and I think it's imperative that we pray in voting and that we would raise up candidates who, uh, who know the fear of the Lord, 
and know that indeed to be the beginning of wisdom because the the reality is is that we've got to talk about that today and how that's the beginning of wisdom and and how that's something we have to actually strive for we 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 must keep that before our eyes always you know i've said this before that the fear of the lord is is literally fear what we have to do is come with him in reverent awe because he is that other who is the creator he is so far above us. He, he is eminent in the person of Jesus and in the person of the Holy Spirit, but he is transcendent as God the Father. Yes, he is our Abba. No question about it. But we've lost the fear of the Lord. In so much of our, our Christianity today, in so many of our churches, there, there's no fear of the Lord. I've been listening to a guy watching to this last week who I've, who I've not listened to in a while, but, but I really like him. His name is Paul Washer, W-A-S-H-E-R. Um, about 20 years ago, he spoke at a youth conference, and that, that thing is legendary, what he did that day among many of us. It, it is absolutely legendary what he did because he stepped forward, and, and, and this is the, the, the theme, essentially, of his speech that day or his sermon that day is just that, that we have taken the things of God too lightly and, and we have lost the fear of the Lord in much of our preaching and much of our teaching and the way that we have raised uh, our youth and, and the way we've done youth ministry. But it's not just youth ministry that's, that's at issue here. It, it's in preaching as well that we've lost any sense of the fear of the Lord and, and we've replaced it with God is my buddy sort of thing. Well, you know, Jesus did come and die on the cross for us. There's the eminence of him doing that. There's the eminence of the Holy Spirit living within us. But then but but we can't lose in that bargain the reality of a God powerful enough to speak all things into being and and not only did he speak them into being, he spoke them into being exactly the way he intended them to be. All things all the elements, everything, whatever was involved in creation obeyed him completely. And, and, and he said it was very good. And then something screwed that up. And that something is us. That something is humanity. And so I want to talk about that today. And I want to work through some of that and, and, and see if I can, I can convince you that what we really need is to be on our knees. We need to drop to our knees rather than, than come in before him in any other way. We need, we need that posture that expresses submission to a loving father while at the same time recognizing that, that he loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us and opened our, us to receive the Holy Spirit within us. But at the same time, we need to come before him with a reverent fear. And it's important that we do that. And so when we look at this, these lessons today, the first thing we see in this first King's <clears throat> lesson is, is we see David dying. So David dies. And then he, there, there's a lot that went into that previous to David's death, that, that, that Solomon's reign was established through bloodshed because his bro- two of his brothers stepped forward and, and decided they were going to be king. And, and those rebellions had to be quelled. And so, so it, finally Solomon's reign is established, and, and it says he sat on the throne of his, David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. And, th- and then we kind of skip forward with some of this stuff. We're looking at, at what David or what, what Solomon does. And so in, verses, in chapter 3, 3 to 14, we're told Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. There was no place to, the established place to worship in Israel. The ark 
is in the city of David. It's in Jerusalem, but it's in a tent. And so there are places where worship happens, and it's sort of disconnected in some ways from the ark, which was the would be in the holy of holies ultimately. So so Solomon is sacrificing and making offerings at the high places. Now Solomon doesn't continue to be this devout because he he begins to marry women from all over the place and then to to bring in their religious practices and beliefs into uh, Israel. But but at this point, the, the thing that he's criticized for here is he's sacrificing and making offerings at the high places. And, and it's in the high places, typically are places where pagan gods are worshipped. But, but in Israel, they offered uh, sacrifices and offerings at those high places too. And here we're told that he goes to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. He used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. A friend of mine and I had a conversation today about the idea and the prospect of the third temple being built, which is a big notion in certain parts of Judaism, but the problem is that's got to happen in a certain place. It's got to happen actually where the Dome of the Rock is today. And the reason for that is is that that in the middle of, underneath the the Dome of the Rock is what they believe to be the foundation stone from which God created the entire universe, and so that everything goes forth from there. So that's the navel of the universe in many ways. And that wailing wall that you see, the eastern wall, it is against that the foundation stone. And so the temple has to sit on that. And not only that, the the, um, Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, has to be on top of the foundation stone. That's that's where it has to be. So so it's, it's all well and good to talk about a third temple, but we believe as Christians that in Revelation what we're told is, is there is no temple there. And the light there is the Son of God. And so there's no temple in that place because there's God is indistinct from the world. He is part of the world. He so infuses the world that there's no need for a temple because there's the, the eminence of God is there. And so the, this idea of building a third temple, and then what we see here is, is that, that Solomon sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings on that altar when he went there. Can you imagine, as my friend pointed out, the uproar that would come from sacrificing that many animals today? God doesn't want those sacrifices, and, and, and that was never his full intent. His, his full intent was that people, we would love justice and do mercy, and that we would follow him, and therefore we would need all those sacrifices except for the sacrifices we made to, to celebrate a peace that established between us and him. And so rather than having sin offerings, and so it, it, it would, it would be unconscionable to think that that, that would be taking place in Jerusalem. But but anyway, that was, he was following the law, and God over and over again says he didn't desire sacrifice, that he desired uh, justice and mercy and obedience more than sacrifice. And so at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon. Now remember again, this is the great high place. And so at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart before you. And we know that David didn't navigate that water perfectly, but but he did try his best. And, and when he was uh, aware, made aware of his own sin, then he was quick to, to repent of it. And he says, You've kept for him this great and steadfast love and given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of David my father, although I'm but a little child. He was not a little child, literally at this point. But but what he's saying is he's taking the posture before the Lord that 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 I I really am in your sight and compared to you. You've you've set me in the role of king over your people. 
And so I'm, I'm supposed to exercise my authority over them in the same way that you would if you were here among us today. And in that regard, he says, I'm but a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. I, I don't, I, there's this deep humility that I believe is, is absolutely real that he expresses to the Lord. And then he says, your servants in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that, listen to this, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. He's acknowledging that, that yeah, okay, I'm in the role of king, but you're ultimately the king because these are your people. And what he wants is an understanding mind to discern good and evil. Where have you heard that before, to discern between good and evil? Well, it comes easily from the garden. And Solomon always have gone to God for information about good and evil, but, but they instead chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree which he told them not to go to. And we should have brought up the question, well, where do we get the knowledge of good and evil if we can't get it from eating of the, tree, the fruit of that tree? And the answer is you could get it from me. And, and the question that I have for us is today is, is that we rejected so much of God's law. That there's so much of it even the churches have rejected. And so now are we in a place where we have decided that we can discern good and evil without God? Or do we believe the Word of God? Do we believe it is the Word of God? And so it's important for us then to, to, to come to that Word, to come to our study of the Word with great humility. And, and I think that's too often not what we do. We bring an arrogance to the table, that, that, that an arrogance in, of, of time, for one thing, but we know more than they did at that time. And therefore, blah, 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 blah. But, but did we know more than God? What do we believe about the Word of God? Do we believe it, it is the Word of God, or do we believe it's the words of men that God somehow mysteriously inhabits whenever it feels okay to us? So it's important, I think, as Christians, that, that we come before the Lord knowing who He is and understanding that, that our desires influence what we believe about things like good and evil. Our desires get in the way of many of those things. That's the reason we're obese. That's the reason that we don't do the things we know to be good for us or eat the things we know to be good for us. It's the reason that we, we do a great many things that are harmful to ourselves is because desire gets in the way, and then it tells us what's good. And that's exactly what happened to the garden because it was, it was good, pleasing to the eyes, right? It was... Um, tasted good, and it was desirable to make one wise. Those are all desire words. And so all the things that we're told about that first sin have to do with desire, and so desire gets in the way of our um, knowledge of good and evil, which should come from him, not from our desires. And so here Solomon comes and says, I, I really need you. I don't possess what I need to govern this people. It's, it's, I'm so far out of my depth that I don't know what else to do. And so he pleads with God for the right thing, and it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you've asked this and not asked for yourself for long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but you've asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall rise after you. I also give you what you have not asked for, riches and honor so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, so this is the conditional part of it, if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I'll lengthen your days too. 
And so Solomon gets this great wisdom, and, and then so that's where we get all the Proverbs that we have, it's sort of a collected wisdom of Solomon. And, and then in the book of Ecclesiastes, what we get is an old man looking back at his life and, and having made a lot of mistakes, um, seeking after the wrong thing, following after the desires of his heart, rather than following after the desires God put in his heart. And then he's looking back on the things that he's accomplished, achieved, or attained, and saying, you know what? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. You know, it's just like a puff of smoke. It's gone. It, there's nothing that will carry me forward into eternity in all those things. And so if you're going if, if to, in all you're getting, get understanding. And so you see a man who has attained to wisdom throughout his life, and he's sought after wisdom. And Ecclesiastes is the, sort of the, the real collected wisdom about life well lived, uh, which is to say set your sight on the right things. Set your sight on those things that are above the sun is the way he, he words it. And so his injunction is to say, you know, I've had everything. I've experienced everything. None of it lasts. None of it is ultimately satisfying. And so get this instead. Look look to the right things. And so his understanding and his wisdom ultimately led him to, to contend that, that everything on earth is just vapor, because that's the word there, that vanity word. It's hevel, and hevel is how we pronounce Abel. So Abel, the, the son of Adam and Eve, the one who died young at the hands of his brother Cain. And so it's, it's just a sort of puff of wind, in, like in the wintertime when you breathe and you can see the vapor of your breath. You know, and it dissipates almost immediately. That's what that means. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. is hevel, hevel, all is hevel. It's that vapor that's not there. It's, it's immaterial. Even though it seems material is what he's saying is because it's not eternal. And so, so what he asks for here, here is the eternal thing. He doesn't seek after that at this point in his life. He's seeking after the wisdom that's required to be a good king. He had a, a good father in some respects. He, he was not a great dad because he failed to discipline his sons most of the time, but he, but he had a great role model for being the king. But he knew that it was going to require a different set of skills for him to be the king, because David was the, the, the man of war, the one who conquered, the one who established the kingdom. And now to rule the kingdom was going to require a, a different set of traits. And, and that's what he's asking for, is how do you rule in time of peace? If we had more leaders who prayed and who were humble before the Lord— then we would be in a better place than we are in America today and in the world today, frankly. So, so that's the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and, and you can see it with him, with Solomon here, when he says, although I'm but a little child, I don't know how to go out or come in. That's the appropriate fear of God. It's, it's when you come before him in prayer, it's, it's the acknowledgement of your own um, nothingness, essentially, in the world. It's the same thing that David's trying to get across when he, when he says, when I, when I consider the works of your hands, the stars, the moon, the sun, all that kind of stuff, and then I consider myself, and I say, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you visit him? You know, I know that in the vast scheme of things, I'm nothing, but for some reason in your eyes, I'm more important than all those things, and I need help and I need your wisdom, and I need to know how to navigate this life in such a way that it glorifies you. I need to know who I am and where I fit 
in the scheme of things in your eyes, not in anybody else's eyes, not in the people around me. I'm not seeking the approval of men, Lord. I'm seeking your approval, and I want to know what my life means, and you're the only person in the universe who can tell me that. So it's the acknowledgement of his greatness, but also of his love, and also of his, his, his mercies towards us, and, and that we, among all created beings, were, were intended to convey his image to the world. And it's that humility that, that, that is the fear of the Lord, that it's the beginning of wisdom, it is, is the recognition that all I can do from here forward is to screw things up and make a mess. If I'm left to my own devices, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to follow my desires. I'm going to follow the devices and desires of my own heart rather than the desire and the devices of God. And so that's why when, when Paul speaks to the Ephesians in this passage here, he begins with real simply, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. Because what he's saying is, is that, that the rest of the world, the world that doesn't know Jesus, the world that doesn't know God, is unwise. So be careful how you walk. Walk as wise people, but that requires certain kinds of attitudes. It requires an attitude of constant prayer. It requires an attitude of constant humility towards God. It doesn't mean that we're obsequious. It doesn't mean that that we wander around with with our head bowed and our hands pressed together in that attitude, uh, and that we allow people to run all over us in the world. No, we should walk in this world with a wisdom that's greater than the people around us, and that it causes other people to actually look at us and go, "What what is the deal with those people? How do they seem to navigate all these things that are going on in the world, COVID and everything else? How do those people navigate without fear? How do they navigate life in a different way? Do, I, do we have the same attitudes as the world towards the things of the world, or do we have different attitudes towards those things? Do, do we take the long view of things, or are we short-term people too, thinking in terms of desire and thinking in terms of what's set in front of us? And, and do we see things maybe the way that Solomon sees them finally in Ecclesiastes, which is to say that those things really are immaterial. The things that appear most material to us are actually the most immaterial things because they're not eternal. They won't endure. And and so then Paul says, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Did Paul live now? No. It's because the days are always evil because men and women are sinful beings and the world is fallen and busted and broken from what it ought to be and from what God intended it to be. And so we need to know how to navigate evil days. And we have much wisdom that's unavailable to those who are not in Christ Jesus to bring to the world. And that needs to be manifest in the church. And he says, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, make yourself subservient to him. Make it your aim to please him. Ask him what he wants you to do, and then go do that. It's it's not tricky. You know, it's not hard to say. And there are places where we come to forks in the road, and we have to, what do you want me to do, Lord? Do you want me to do this? You want me to do that? And then we have to be able to adjust whenever our plans get thwarted in some way or another. We had a problem this week, you know, that we were we were traveling. We, we ended up having a problem. Something happened with a tire. I didn't understand it very well. The two plies separated, and 
the thing is vibrating all over the world and pulling to the right. It's like even at five miles an hour. But but the tire looks fine from the outside. It just felt like the alignment just completely let go. Ended up stopping and spending about two and a half hours in a tire shop. And, and Will and I had a great conversation. And I had a great conversation with the guy that owned the um, the tire company. And it ended up being a real blessing, actually. Well, it might have seemed like a horrific inconvenience. We've got to be able to be those kind of people who, who don't wander around and bitter and angry because our plans aren't turning out the way we wanted them to be. We, we've got to accept and appreciate whatever God puts in our path, even where it conflicts with our plans. And, and so we've got to see the blessing in all those things. And so Paul says, just understand what the will of the Lord is. Sometimes he'll make it plain to you by saying, you know, you'll, you'll know what you know what you know. But then other times it'll be when it's an inconvenience to you, when it doesn't fit your plans. But, but know that he's in charge and he's in control of all things. And so whatever happens is what he wanted to happen. And so we've got to find the blessing in that, whether it's a blessing for us or a blessing we're to bring to the table in that place. But, but we can't insist on our way all the time. That's, that Again, that's one of those things about desire. That, that, that We think we know good and evil. Well, we don't have any idea. You know, that's the honest truth. The, 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 the unspirit-filled person doesn't have a clue what's good and evil. We know what we think we like, and that's what we typically mean by, by good and evil, that which comports with what, what I believe is best and makes my life easiest. So, and then he says, don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be drunk on the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't leave room for everything else. Be, be, be so satisfied and fulfilled by the Holy Spirit that you don't need anything to bring you up or whatever. And so he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I, we're not good at that right now. Way too often I have people come into me and most of our conversation ends up being about, you know, COVID or politics or, or whatever. And, you know, that's not helpful. I go away filled with, you know, some other thing than the Holy Spirit whenever I have those things. And, and then I've got to dwell on that conversation at some level. And it's No, you know what? I can't resolve any of that stuff. I'm just going to keep plowing forward, and I'm going to just trust God and all these things. It doesn't mean we're to be unaware of what's going around on around us, but why are Christians gathering and spending all our time talking about other stuff? You know, it, it, the in Judaism, they consider that worthlessness and a sin. If two Jews get together and don't discuss Torah, that's a sinful behavior, and it speaks horribly of them. You know, I'm not saying that they all follow that. But I'm saying that we as Christians need to be thinking in the same way because that's how we, we lift one another's sights when we do that. We lift one another above the, the just mess and morass of life, and we lift one another by, by speaking to one another in some psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You don't want me to sing and make melody to the Lord in front of you, but it, thank goodness, Paul says, in your heart. But, but that's what we need to do, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that I've learned in this last little bit with Will is, is that whenever I, whenever I say, hey, let's go for a walk, he thanks me. And that's not characteristic of who he was before that. And what I realize is it's not characteristic of me because I should be looking at him and saying, thanks for going with me. I appreciate that very much. It, it's, we need to learn to be thankful 
always for all things. The thing we need to be most thankful for is here in John 6, 51 to 58. I'm the bread, the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the world, for the life of the world, is my flesh. So let's go back to the garden. And let's go back to the, the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom and all that idea. Jesus says, come and eat. I'm the bread that will allow you to live forever. I'm the bread of life. I'm, I'm the bread from that other tree. The one that's now guarded by the cherubim in the, in the garden, the tree of life. That's me. I'm giving you that bread. You can't go back to the garden and get that fruit from the tree of life. You get it right here. I am that bread. And people won't come. It's an amazing thing to look at the rejection of Jesus when he's offering life. He's offering Live forever if you eat of this bread, and the bread I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then we reject that because we're still seeking after something we desire more than that. We don't see that as material. We see it as immaterial, and it's ultimately material. And so they disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, is he asking us to be cannibals is a legitimate question. So Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. I mean, he is, he is saying some deeply offensive stuff here. I mean, they're not supposed to eat anything, any flesh that still has blood in it. They have to drain the blood. They, they have to kill the animal in such a way that all the blood comes out because you don't mix two kinds of blood. They're, you're taking the life, because he says the life is in the blood. So the blood of that thing is life. It's the life of that thing, and you don't mix the life of something else with human life. That's why the injunction against eating or drinking blood is there. The life is in the blood, and so you don't mix kinds of life, not as a human being. And so Jesus, when he says, eating my flesh, and which is cannibalism and drinking his blood, he has multiplied the offense when he says that. And so we have to come to grips with what kind of life is it that's in his flesh and in his blood that we're invited to eat? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So you can only say that if there's something different about your blood that will give new life to the one who drinks it. And so that's exactly what Jesus is saying. You want to taste eternity? Do you want to taste life, true life? Then come. And it's got to do with communion. It's, it's, it's communion, and it's also belief. It's, it's all of that wrapped into one. He says, my flesh is true food, and my blood is true, true drink. We don't believe in, in our tradition in the, the change in substance of bread and wine to body and blood. We believe there's a spiritual transaction that occurs when we take that. And we believe it because that's kind of what Paul's alluding to in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, some of you people who are not discerning the body, some of you have gotten sick and some have even died from taking it unworthily. Well, if it has power to make you sick or to kill you, then it has power to heal you and to give you life. So communion is an important part of worship. 
And so Jesus is clearly speaking of that here, in addition to the metaphorical understanding of, of the, the, the eating his flesh and drinking his blood in a spiritual transaction where we've come to faith and believe. He's speaking more than that. And, and like as I said, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 13. So he, he goes on to say, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And, and that's the ultimate abiding, is to take the life of Christ into your body. To eat his flesh and to drink his blood is, is to, to, to not take something in that, that's, that ultimately ends up being waste products. No, it, it, it is there for life. And so he, he said, be, be, when you do that, then as, as you're afraid to drink the blood of animals because that life will abide in you, he said, drink my blood and my life, eternal life. And we know it's eternal life because of the resurrection will abide in you. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate, the manna, and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. I mean, it's a huge promise. Do you believe him? Do you believe that? And if you believe that, then come on your knees. Come to him and receive what he alone has to offer. There's nowhere else on earth you can get what Jesus has to offer, and that is eternal life. You can't get it in any other religion, only by eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the truth of the gospel that we have to insist on. And it's so simple that anybody who rejects it, that's not on him, and it's not on you. It's on them. If you want to choose another way, then choose another way, but it doesn't lead to the same place. But we leave all that to the Lord. But he was willing to watch these 10,000 people walk away this day because they couldn't hear that word. Well, he couldn't make it any easier. He could not make it any easier. All you have to believe, do is believe and partake. And if you reject that, then you've rejected the simplest, most amazing offer you'll ever have in your life. It's not too good to be true. It is true, and it is good.